So last week, we wrapped up our series titled, what? Anybody remember? Who is Jesus? Yes. Well, we spent five or six weeks asking that question, who is Jesus? And it went along, you know, kind of went right on the heels of what's in a name where we asked God, you know, who is God? And what is in the names of God? All part of our going deep series that we're, our teaching and preaching series that we've been covering throughout this year. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a new series. We're going to begin in the Gospel of Mark. And it is the most action-packed, fast-paced, moving gospel there is. There's a lot of action. I mean, it's demon encounters as soon as you open the book and start reading it. It is really, really good, and that's going to carry us through the rest of the summer and then into the fall, and I'm looking forward to that. But today, what I'm going to do is a one-off, just kind of a standalone. It doesn't go with anything, but I think it is going to go deep, and I think you're really going to to like this. Uh, I like it. I like what we're going to do. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, Now, then, there's way too many scriptures For me to just give you one, because otherwise we'd just be flipping and flopping and all over the place. They're all going to be on the screen, though. So you'll be able to read along there. And if you just want to write them down, you can look these up when uh, when you get home and you have uh, you have some spare time. But it was just too many to try to get you to uh, try to keep up with. So with that said, let's begin. Imago Dei. Anybody speak Latin in the room? I do not. No Latin speakers. Anybody know what that means? Imago Day. One person's got it in the back. Anybody else know what it is? Image of God. That's what it is. So a couple of other you, you picked it up. You, you, you thought it might be image of God, but you weren't quite sure. And then as it revealed itself, you realized, yes, that you were right. Well, that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes is image of God. And not just the image of God, but also the image that, that we put out as well. And there's a question that I want us to ask ourselves. Or rather, here's a question that I want you to ask yourself as we move through this material. And it's this, what am I reflecting? Because whether we admit it or not... Whether we admit it or not, we all portray, we all reflect a certain image. Am I right? Yes. Um, we all project and, and, and put out a certain image. An image is important. Okay? Image is very important. It affects the way we dress, does it not? Yes, and we might think, well, no, it doesn't. I try to dress normal. Well, your image is to portray what you believe is normal dress, okay? There are others that they dress, they're a little bit out there, okay? And that's about an image, okay? There are others that, you know, they dress very calm and, you know, and might like beiges and stuff like that. And I don't know if it's to to, to portray an image of just, just calmness or whatever it might be. But image is important. It affects the way we dress, whether we think about it or not. It also affects the way we talk, does it not? It affects how we say things, how we want to be perceived 
by our words and the way and the things that we talk about. And then finally, it affects the way we act, right? We want to put out a certain image. And so we might, you know, if there's somebody that we particularly like, okay, if there's somebody that has had a particular influence on them, we might try acting a little bit like them. And it can affect the, the persona that we put forth. Image, image reflects who we are, right? Image reflects who we are. God, God created us to live in a certain way, right? He created us, He had a grand design for what the world was supposed to be like. But what happens, we try to do things our own way. Okay? We try to do things our own way and it kind of messes it up. And we can end up being something that we're not. So the question is, what happened? How did we get to that point? The answer is that we compromised. We compromised. We compromised on what God had in mind. We compromised on God's plan. But here's the thing about compromise. Not all compromise is bad. Do you agree with that? Not all compromise is bad. There are good compromises that are out there. Mutual agreement is a good compromise, right? It saves relationships. It saves marriages. It saves families, it saves corporations, it saves friendships. You know, and, and you have to do this, especially as, you know, uh, as I deal with couples that are getting ready to be married and we go through pre- premarital counseling. One of the things we talk about is how to compromise. Now then, there are certain things that you're going to stand your ground on in a marriage relationship. We know that. Everybody has their things that they are willing to to fall on the sword for. Okay, and that's good because that's part of your personhood. That's part of what you believe and who you are. But then again, there are other things that maybe you can find some wiggle room, right? Because if you don't, you're going to be in conflict all the time. All the married people say amen if you agree with that. Good, yes, that's true. Yes, yeah. So mutual agreement is a good compromise. For those of you that have been married for any time longer than we'll say two weeks, has mutual agreement saved or benefited your marriage? If yes, just put up your hands. Yes, it has. Okay, it is a good, good thing. And here's the thing about about a good compromise. It stands for the truth. Right? A good compromise stands for the truth and it does not mess with image. Because it's always going to be about how can I love this person more than I love myself. Right? And is that not the greatest command? Right. And we're going to look at that passage, but not the one you think that Jesus said. Okay. Something that God gave to Moses way back then. 
good compromise, it doesn't back away from the truth, and it does not compromise image. But then there is bad compromise. And bad compromises, they do stuff like this. They divide relationships, marriages, families, and they break hearts. They bring the end of of corporations and businesses, right? Because you compromise on your ethics or you compromise on your morals. You start cutting corners and you fudge numbers here or there or you choose to, to cheat and be unfaithful on your spouse. Okay? Bad compromise, a compromisation of your vows is a bad thing. And it leads to, to nothing but, but heartache. And here's why. Because it backs away from the truth. It exchanges truth for lies. And when it does that, it absolutely messes with image. And it conforms to the society's image. To what society says our world should be like. So, the image of society says do what you want to do. Right? Live how you want to live. Act how you want to act. If you need to lie and cheat and steal and step on and hurt people in order to get what you want or to get to the top or whatever it might be to achieve success, then you do what you have to do. Watch out for number one, right? This is what the world message in general says. However, God has something better in mind for all of us. And He always has. But we compromised. And I think it all has to do with image. So what I want to do now is I want us to trace the image trail through Scripture. Are you with me on that? That sound like fun? Good. Romans 12, 2. That's going to be the verse I'm going to open with. I'm going to bring this full circle and I'm going to end with Romans 12, 1 by the time we, we get there. Romans 12, 2 says this. Do not be, say this word with me, conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. There it is right there. Paul is saying it. Do not be conformed. Okay? We know what conforming or, or compromising does. We just looked at it. it. It backs away from truth. Okay? Conforming and compromising messes with the image that God has for us. And so Paul is writing this and he says, hey, look, no matter what the world is selling you, don't conform to it. Okay? Don't buy what it is selling. Don't conform. Rather, be transformed. Be changed by the renewing of your mind. And then, then when you're transformed, you can know what God's will is. That good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Society wants us to conform and to be shaped by its image. To take on what it it, it values. And we look around now and we say the world is maybe worse than it's ever been. Who has said that? 
Who has said the world is worse now than when it was when you were younger? Come on now. There should be way more hands up than that. Yeah. We tend to think that. We think, oh boy, if we could just go back to the way it was. The good old days. But here's the thing. The world has been bad for a long time. Right? What did Proverbs, I mean Ecclesiastes say? There's nothing new under the sun. Right? There's nothing new. I mean, what happens is we've just got better at sinning. We've figured out more creative ways to do it. Okay, we have easier access to it. But compromise and bad uh, conforming has always been around. It's been around since almost the very beginning. Remember back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. They have one command from God. What is it? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? That's it. They had the whole run of the garden. The only thing they weren't supposed to do is eat off of that tree. Then along comes the serpent. Feeds them a half-truth. Did God really say that? God's just jealous. He doesn't want you to be like him. God knows that if you eat this fruit, you will be like him. You won't surely die. You'll be like God. And so what happened? Adam and Eve conformed. They bought in to the lie that the serpent was selling. They take the fruit. They back away from God's will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. They conform to something else. And everything then begins to fall apart. It begins to fall apart. And so then now God has to begin addressing image. He begins to have to deal with worship and how people went about worship and things that were number one in their life. Because as long as we're focused on God and we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we're focused on God. We're focused on Jesus. But when we conform, we get pulled off in other directions, right? And God knew that. So he calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20 and he hands down what we know of as the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one. What is it? You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second command. In the second command, God addresses image. Do you know that? Do you remember that? Let's pull out our King James. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven what? Image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water underneath the earth. So there it is right there. God is saying, don't make any graven image. And we know how the story goes. Moses goes back down the mountain and what have the people done? They've done that exact thing. They have created an image. They've created the golden calf and Moses takes the tablets, the word of God, throws it down and breaks into a million pieces. He's got to go back and get a new set. The people conformed. 
They backed away from God's will. They conformed. They created this image. Now then, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. There's questions we want to wrestle with. And it's this. Why does God say this? God doesn't forbid this because he's too vast to be fairly represented in a, in a statue or a sculpture or whatnot. And it's not like God has image issues. Okay? God is God. Who's the one with the image issues? Us. All of us. We all have image issues to some degree or another. So why does God say, don't, you know, don't make any graven images? Here's why. We don't create images after God because He's already created an image of Himself. What is it? Us. That's why we don't create images. Because God has already created the perfect image of Himself. Okay? And that's us. Okay? So when society, again, is trying to sell you the bag of goods that says you are worthless, you don't matter, you're too dirty, you're too this, you're too that, you can't overcome that past, nobody could ever love you, remember this, you are created in the image of God. How do we know that? Because Genesis 1.27 says, So God created humankind, say the yellow with me, in His image, in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. You are the image of God. Right? Every single person... We are the image bearers. That's what we were created to be. Created to be the image bearers of God. Why? We were created to be His image in a world that reflects lust, greed, and immorality. But God is not the only person who addresses the issue of image. Jesus had things to say about image too. Did you know that? In Mark chapter 12, the Pharisees are doing what they often did. They're setting a trap for Jesus. And they come to him and they, you know, with their sweetly seasoned words, oh, we know that you're great. You're this great teacher. You show no partiality. You have all of this wisdom. Tell us, oh, great teacher. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now that's a hot, bus, hot button issue right there. Hot button issue with the Jews. Why? Because they live under Roman oppression. Okay? They have an invading nation living in their land and those invaders are gracious enough to tax the people whose land they've invaded. So they force the Jews... To pay this tax. And so everybody hates paying the Romans. Okay? I mean, and, and that still goes on. Nobody enjoys paying taxes, right? I mean, we do it because it's law of the land, but nobody likes it. And so the Pharisees think we got this perfect trap. Okay? Because, why? If he says 
No, don't pay Caesar. Well, the Jews are going to like him, but he's breaking the law. And guess what? He's going to turn them into the, they're going to turn him into the Romans. This guy says, you don't have to pay him. So they say, what do we do? Watch what Jesus says. He takes a coin and he says, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they said. Jesus told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. That's a brilliant response by Jesus. Right? He just says, okay, give me a coin. Whose image is this? Well, that's Caesar's. And Jesus says, okay, then. If it's his image on his coin, it must belong to him. So give it back to him. Give to God the things that are God's. So let's, let's compare and contrast just a minute. God's image versus Caesar's image. Caesar's image represented everything that the empire valued. And so Jesus says, give Caesar everything that bears the image of the empire. Or of the emperor. But give to God the things that bear his divine image. Okay? The coins, yeah, they got Caesar's image. Give them to them. But the things that bear God's image, you. Give yourself to God. Give yourself to to Him. And what bears God's image is us. It's us who have been transformed into the image of Christ. Colossians 1.15 says that He, Jesus... Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We cannot see God with our eyes. But Jesus said, if you have seen me, then you've seen my Father. Okay? Paul writes here in Colossians, and he says that Jesus is the image, the reflection of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he's the first one born. It means he is the most important over anything or anybody that's ever been born. That's what that means. In order of importance. It's not chronological. Okay? So Paul is saying Jesus is the reflection, the image. Ooh, there goes the podium. The image of God. And we see God by Jesus reflecting that image. We are to be transformed into the image of Christ. But when we compromise, we conform to the image of the world. Does that make sense? We're to be transformed into the image of Christ. When we compromise, we conform to the image of the world. And when we do this, 
we take on its mark. Now then, this is where it gets a little technical. But this is really, really important, so hang with it. In Revelation chapter 13, which is, by the way, one of the difficult chapters in the book of Revelation, like just about all of them. But in Revelation 12 and 13, Jesus is directing John. He's showing him this vision. John is writing everything down. And in chapter 12, we read about a woman. We read about a child. We read about a dragon. The woman represents God's people. The child represents Jesus. The dragon represents Satan. Then you get into chapter 13 and you read about two different beasts. Okay? Two different beasts. This is what Revelation 13 says. And he, the beast, requires everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a what? A mark. On his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name, or the number of his name. Theologian John Mark Hicks, who was here with us last summer, he says this about this chapter. He says, The beast mirrors the interests of the dragon. The beast, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor. That's what those beasts are. Okay? The beast mirrors the interest of the dragon, of Satan, while the Lamb, Jesus, reflects the glory of the one on the throne. Right? The beast... reflects or, or, or mirrors, rather, the interest of the dragon, of the world, of society. Selfishness, pride, vanity, lust, greed, corruption, bad compromise, while the Lamb reflects the Father, who is the image of the invisible God. Those who conform to culture mirror its image. Those not bearing God's image reveal something else. They reveal that they are marked. Does that make sense? I mean, we know, we've seen, we have probably lived at some point with the mark of the world on us. Because we live in a broken world. Sin broke that world. And the way we used to live, you know, Paul talks about that, the way you were before Christ. You know, you did things that were not of God. You did things that were ugly, that hurt people. You made compromises. You were selfish. You were greedy. You lusted. You made bad compromise. You were marked by society. Now notice God's perspective. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Moses writes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These are the words that I'm giving you today. They are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up and bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Bind what as a sign? Let what be a symbol? Love. Love that we have for God. In, in, in Matthew chapter 22, what's the greatest command? Jesus quotes that, the first part of that passage. And then he adds to it. And here's another one. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commands. Okay? So what we see is that while we can recognize someone who is marked by society, we also can recognize someone who has been marked by Jesus. Okay? Why? Because there's going to be a sign. There's going to be a symbol. And that sign and symbol is the love of God. They will know we are Christians by our love. That's how we know. And then what we see is that those belonging to to God. Those belonging to God reflect Him. Now that's a simple statement, but yet it's one that's incredibly complex. If you belong to God, truly belong to God, you will reflect that. you will reflect God's image. You will reflect that by the way you act. By the things that you do or don't do, by the things that you say or don't say, you will reflect it most importantly by the way you love or do not love. That's That's the image of God. That's how people will know if we belong to God because we will reflect God. And so in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. What is a true form of worship? It is reflecting the image of God to a world that says live how you want to live. Do what you want to do. Act how you want to act. So two questions on image. Here's the first one. Number one, what image are you reflecting? But make it personal. What image am I reflecting? And then the second question is this. 
Have you been transformed into God's image? Or have you conformed to the world's? And those are important questions. What are we reflecting? Because we will reflect what we have been affected by. If we choose a worldly lifestyle, that will be reflected in everything we do. But if we choose to be transformed by Jesus, by the renewing of our minds through Jesus, then we know God's will, God's purpose, which is to have the symbol of the image of God, love bound on us as well. And people around us will know that we are God's because of the image we reflect. We become like Jesus. We reflect the image of the invisible God. That's the Imago Dei. The image of God. So I leave the question with you that I opened with. What am I reflecting?